Hello humans, we've got Stefan from Body Banter on the show today. Because it was such a great conversation, I've decided to chop it up into two parts. So for now, enjoy part one. Hello humans, welcome back to another episode of Awkward at Work with me, your host, Emery. Um, today I've got Steph on the podcast. Uh, say hello, Steph. Hi everyone. Uh, we met... Oh, actually, how we? I think we got introduced right from uh, by a mutual friend, and then we had coffee, and then kind of ever since we just kind of stay in touch because uh, we actually had that coffee for for a long time. Definitely went way over time, uh, and just talked about many many things that was not planned, but it was a, a great discussion. And then found out there's loads of overlapping themes. Um, so yeah, so when I thought I had a slot on the podcast uh, around this topic today, um, you were the first person in my mind. Aw, thanks for having me, Emery. And first of all, I I just wanted to say that I love the name Awkward Turtle at work. Um, I personally identify as an awkward turtle and um, proudly so. (laughs) I think we might have talked about this as well. Um, I think awkwardness is an awesome quality to have, and it really ties into the values I hold in my work as well. Um, I research uh, mental health storytelling, um, specifically how people in Hong Kong tell stories of mental illness and recovery. Um, and I also do a lot of work with young people to start conversations about very sensitive and awkward topics, mm. including body image. Um, so I think it ties in so nicely to the work you do. And I'm excited to have a very awkward conversation about awkward topics. <laughs> it's awesome to, to have that. Um, to, you know, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. What, what better place to start? So tell us first your passion when it comes to language and conversation. How does this all begin for you? Mm. I think um, my work is very much tied to my personal experiences. And uh, I grew up here in Hong Kong and um, went to school here, high school, um, before moving to um, the US for college and then coming back again for my PhD. So I think my relationship with language is, first of all, comes from a very personal place, uh, being someone who kind of sits on the cusp of a cultural identity, <laughs> so to speak. You know, mm. um, my, my parents, um, speak Cantonese and that's their first language. Um, my first language uh, is, I would say, I'm most comfortable expressing myself in English. Um, but recently I've also been thinking about um, the ways in which Cantonese words also carry a lot of emotional meaning for me. Um, and there are certain things that I just can't explain um, in English in the same way as I would be able to in Cantonese. Um, even just as uh, simple as a word like I was talking about this on a reel the other day, yokkan. Mm. Um, and the only type of, the only translation for that that I can really kind of describe in English is that feeling that Agnes gets in Despicable Me, where she's holding a unicorn right. and she's squeezing it and she says, <laughs> it's so fluffy, I want to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's basically true. just, it's that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, there, there is a phrase, but not exactly. And it's like squeaky bum time. <laughs> Um, that's, that. it's something that's yeah Love yeah that. um it can it's it, depending on the context it, it can also sound very wrong uh but uh it's usually used a lot in football in mm. like kind of the last five minutes if let's say if you're one goal up last like couple of minutes left the squeaky bum time because like you might lose or win in a split of a second uh but yeah you're right there's so many words in Cantonese that there is just no direct translation to even if there is it just it doesn't hit the spot as I say but how did you start from kind of realizing that and then kind of turning into I guess your work and and, I mean actually studying for it absolutely 
um, I think the impetus for kind of doing the work that I do today with mental health advocacy and the relationship between language and the ways we talk about mental illness, um, also from a personal experience. Uh, so I experienced an eating disorder in my teens and I found it extremely difficult and frankly, really awkward to bring it up in conversation um, within a clinical context, even just asking for support um, and saying the words, you know, like, I'm struggling <laughs> and trying to express that in Cantonese, in a Cantonese context. And I kind of, one of my most prominent memories of help seeking in my recovery days was sitting in the doctor's office and then hearing the doctor tell me the, the name of my diagnosis in Cantonese, which was Yim Sik okay. And that, right. you know, again, if you, if you speak Cantonese and you're listening to this podcast, it will make a lot of sense to you why it made me so uncomfortable to hear the Cantonese translation for anorexia nervosa, which is the eating disorder I was diagnosed with. Mm. Um, and it literally translates to the hating food condition. And, you know, mm. I think the reason why it made me so uncomfortable was because this is the name that is allocated to this condition. And yet the very name itself conveys a negative stereotype about people with eating disorders or anorexia specifically, mm -hmm. um, it says it basically it reinforces that. it. Exactly. So, you know, even before the conversation begins, there is already that negative assumption that comes with it. Um, so I think, mm. you know, I didn't quite have the language for it back then. Um, but now that I look back, I realize that there is so much about the language itself. So the specific terms that we have um, and the ways that we feel about certain concepts um, and ideas um, mm -hmm. in our daily lives. So um, I think that really drives uh, the work that I do with body banter. I'm starting those conversations with young people about, hey, you know, even if there is this term um, in our language and it feels uncomfortable to talk about, um, how, what are the ways that we can step back from these existing terms? Like, you know, change doesn't, that kind of change of changing a term doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> so what can we do in the meanwhile, you know, kind of exploring the concept itself? Where does it come from? Having conversations surrounding those um, stigmatizing terms. Um, so that's something I'm very passionate about. I actually asked you a very similar question as well when we had uh, when we first <laughs> met. When you put it into Cantonese context, the language is there, but in a very formal way. So when you say it in Cantonese, um, mm. it sounds weird and, and awkward and like automatically a hundred times more serious and, and it's just not comfortable, right? So people, I think, also avoid using those terms because it doesn't it doesn't go into the sentence let's say mm. transgender when you say the word transgender it in Cantonese it just also comes up with like a weird, weird different mm. kind of stigma and, and feeling around it so I asked you it was like so what do we do do we use a new term or do we you know what what, what, what do we do and you mentioned a study about um I yeah. don't know what the exact study was called but I'm gonna let you explain it before I, before I say anything horribly wrong <laughs> no uh, that's a great segue into something I was going to elaborate on, actually, Emery. Um, so the article, um, it was in the New York Times, and it was called, um, basically, a rose by any name would smell the same. And it, this is, I don't even remember what the study was called, but, <laughs> or, um, frankly, um, I, I would love to share that, uh, that article, or the link um, mm. in the show notes um, later on. We can put it in the show notes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really interesting article. And basically, the premise of it is that, um, you know, there have been people who have tried to change the name of diagnostic terms, and um, it has gone far enough that people will contemplate why certain terms are stigmatizing. So it gives people that 
mm, that reason to to kind of step back from the diagnostic label. But it doesn't actually change perceptions because what people, what human beings do is, oh, um, this is the new name for this diagnosis. I'm going to apply the same assumptions that I had um, mm-hmm. <laughs> toward that previous name and just basically do the same thing, <laughs> which was fascinating to me because I think um, we kind of assume that you know, once we change the language, it's naturally immediately going to have some kind of ripple effect and and change our perceptions as well. But again, it's not that simple. And I think what we really have to continue to do is to have conversations about, um, you know, the assumptions we have, um, rather than just kind of say, oh, you know, do the the, the mouth, essentially the work of saying, oh, we're going to change the label, and that's going to fix the problem. And it's really not the It's case. so weird, right? It's kind of like almost counterproductive, the way kind of we thought that would work, changing the label, but but it's really kind of the core of what it means uh, and the core of what we associate those words with certain, you know, traits or whatever it may be. And um, I wanted to ask, so how has it been going in Hong Kong? Why did you really want to tackle Cantonese? I mean, you could have done English, you could have done, I mean, there, there are still stigma around certain languages in English. Yeah, I think this builds nicely on what we've been talking about already. And um, I think to be <laughs> to be honest, um, there is a lot to be said about, um, you know, there's the saying that all research is me-search. Okay. <laughs> and I don't think that there's anything quite as true as that um, in the reasons why I'm so interested in Cantonese as essentially um, a system, a language system that um, for for which through which I can explore the topic of um, understandings of mental illness, because, you know, just personally growing up and experiencing um, the eating disorder in my teens, you know, I think it made me think a lot about um, how can I express myself mm. um, and how can I express myself going through this difficult time and what are the um, what does each language or each tool I have in my expressive toolbox, how does each thing in that toolbox help me express myself? And, you know, just going into the research now and talking to more people who are, um, who speak both English and Cantonese, who just speak um, mainly Cantonese. And, you know, I think most people in Hong Kong speak a little mm-hmm. bit of both. Um, yeah, I think it's been fascinating to me um, to understand how different language systems and not just, I guess, specific language tools within, um, let's say, metaphors or um, comparisons, you know, all of these or rhetorical questions, all of these tools we have within language, not just that, but kind of entire language systems. Um, Something I've been very interested to look at is code switching um, when people talk about recovery um, and how people will strategically switch from, like, you know, they'll be speaking in Cantonese for most of the story and then they'll switch to English when they're talking about ah, specific experiences. Okay. And I'm, I don't have an answer to why people do that yet, um, but it's been on my mind. And I have, I've noticed that that's something a lot of people do. Um, so I think perhaps the thing about Hong Kong that fascinates me is that we are such a diverse community and we do have so many cultures, um, you know, kind of, coming, yeah, kind of coming together in this space that we have. And it just fascinates me that people use language in so many different ways. Wow. <laughs> so that's my long yeah, answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch <laughs> if I do that saying. I reckon I would. And choose certain yeah. languages to speak at, at whatever do. time. <laughs> Tell me what happens, like, uh, you know, in terms of your observations. Do share with me. <laughs>
Hmm. Yeah, I think even just mm, reckoning with my own cultural identity. I think a lot of the work I do um, involves naturally involves my own story. And um, this is something I think about more generally. I'm sure it's similar for you as well. You know, when your advocacy work is so closely tied to your story, um, your personal story, you really have to set up really strong boundaries, um, you know, balancing the ability to be vulnerable while also credible. And I think it's, yeah, I think that's something that I, I frequently think about um, as to, you know, what the, what the line between those two things are, how to make sure that I'm telling a story that's going to resonate with my audience, but not at the expense of my emotional well-being. Um, so yeah, um, I think in terms of whether it was difficult to bring up you know, aspects of cultural identity or cultural nuances of uh, discussions about mental illness. I really kind of, I think the tough part for me was digging into myself and asking myself what were, you know, how does my own cultural identity affect the way that I talk about mental illness? Um, you know, for so long, I, I think there's a lot of shame that comes up with the fact that I grew up in Hong Kong and there are words and concepts that I can't explain in Cantonese. I'm like, oh, I'm such a you know, group in a family that tried so hard <laughs> to um, make me proficient in this language. And yet there are things that I can't say. Um, I can't understand. I, I don't, I'm not considered local in a lot of the contexts that I am situated in. And so that brings me a lot of guilt and shame. And so I think um, owning that and kind of on, still on the process of trying to reckon with my cultural identity and, um, sit in that in-between space has been a huge part um, of of my advocacy work. Especially yeah. the way the world is. A lot of kids nowadays grow up at different cultures, uh, at different cities, different countries all the time. Uh, it's a whole mm. mixed bag of, of kind of background nowadays, especially I think in Hong Kong. Generally speaking, a lot of kids, um, local or not, you know, a lot of them do go abroad as well. I mean, myself, I, went, I was born here, but uh, I went abroad for school. And kind of like you as well, had that kind of in-between, like, oh, I know bits here, but I know bits there, but not quite local enough but not quite you know it's also a process it's like how um do you, you know at the same time you don't want to be labeled but at the same time we as humans we're still in that label somehow so it's a weird thing that to 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 kind of find the right spot for each person yeah I think it's just as you you said just now it's such a balance between finding belonging um, and also uh, finding a place to move beyond those boundaries. I think this occurs for culture and gender and um, experiences with mental illness. So yeah, it applies to, to most things, I would say, in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which leads me on to say, um, tell us about Body Banter, uh, and then we're going to talk about more kind of how kind of adding to, the, to what you just said now as well is that kind of, it kind of also relates to everyone. Hmm, for sure. Um, yeah, I think Body Banter... Um, oh, it's so hard to start talking about something that's such a big part of my life. I'm sure it's similar, you know, in, again, with the work that you do, Emery, in terms of, you know, like finding your story and bringing it to the bigger, into the, into a bigger scope. I think it always is like, oh, how do I even begin describing this work? That is such a fundamental core part of my life. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I'll start by saying that body banter, uh, the main goal we have is not necessarily to communicate a specific way that young people should think about their bodies um, in terms of saying like, oh, even that, oh, you should celebrate your body. You should feel positively about your body. Um, I think these are messages that um, 
I tried very hard to communicate in the early stages of body banter um, because it was so instrumental to my own recovery. And um, body banter, you know, it came so much out of my story that I tried very hard to communicate things that worked for me. Um, and in recent years, um, I've started to expand body banter's, body banter's mission to essentially just cultivate a sense of curiosity in young people so that they can mm. explore what body image means on their own terms. And what I've been learning is that a lot of times it might not begin from a place of, you know, even appreciating their bodies. Um, I remember very, very clearly that um, I was in a workshop with a Cantonese speaking audience um, one time. And this was one of the first Cantonese speaking workshops that I'd done. And usually in the workshop, something that I, I um, you know, I just go through quite a couple of slides that will talk about different approaches to um, you know, approaching your body in a more positive way. Um, I talked a lot about, you know, I basically bashed um, different MTR ads in Hong Kong, <laughs> saying <laughs> how it was really toxic and problematic. Um, and, you know, I kind of assumed that at the end of this presentation, um, when I asked the question about, you know, I asked uh, the students to design an MTR ad that they would like to see. Um, after this presentation that I'd given where I'd openly mm -hmm. bashed these MTR ads, right? Okay. <laughs> and what happened, <laughs> what the, you know, the, the drawings that I got from the end of that workshop were pictures or were, you know, young people drawing different KOLs that they'd seen, that they admired, different oh, weight yeah. loss ads. You know, what essentially happened was that young people still wanted the same things and they were still in a place of you know you know admitting that these were the things that impacted their everyday lives and their psychological mm. well-being a lot so i think something that i learned and that i will carry with me um continuing going forward is that um perhaps you know we first need to talk openly and honestly about those impact or those social um, factors, things like, you know, MTR ads, advertisements that we see on YouTube, um, social media, mm -hmm. um, there needs to be an open conversation about the ways we do buy into these ideals. And honestly, so um, that needs to be the place that we need to provide a space for people to admit that they are affected by this. And then perhaps mm -hmm. if there is room and this person is open, um, exploring perspectives outside of this narrow worldview that we've been provided. Essentially, that uh, I think the problem isn't so much that people have problematic, um, problematic beliefs about their body, but that they think that these problematic beliefs are the only ones out there. So mm, yeah, I think yeah. that something I want to do with body banter is to help young people see that that's definitely not the only way that you can see your body and that you can understand the concept of body image. Yeah, I think that what you said earlier, I think that really hit me was um, using the word omitting, um, because I think a lot of us or a lot of people on the streets, we see these ads on you know, MTR buses, right, YouTube or whatever, uh, with these really subconscious thoughts and, and ideals about the world, I think a lot of people don't even clock that's what they're feeding in. Um, so I think even mm. the process of actually getting them to admit and being aware of it and actually clocking that, oh my God, this is what I've been believing for X amount of years because I've been seeing these ads everywhere. I think that is a very big step to start with. Uh, and by obviously having this conversation, that's going to start them think, rethinking and re reflecting what they what their beliefs are or where they even come from. Mm -hmm. um, I think living in Hong Kong maybe as well is that we are such a fast-paced city. 
everything is a competition. Uh, getting the MTR is a whole you know, <laughs> fight on its own. Yeah. Um, there is literally no room to be like, you know, reflecting. And I think that's mm. that's often what the the um, maybe the trouble, maybe the the, the the challenge is, is that there's just no room, like you said, for people to reflect. And I think it goes quite nicely to kind of what the DNI work that I do is because a lot of times mm. I don't believe anyone's inherently racist, anyone's inherently transphobic, or you know, whatever the word you want to use, um, or whatever the, the the circumstances. But I think it's mm. all about awareness and if they are even aware of what they're saying is harmful. And then I think go back to you is yeah. you know what these people are talking about body image to themselves internally is that harmful? Like a lot of them haven't been clocked it. Um, so mm. especially I think starting from a younger um, audience, that's really going to change kind of how the conversation goes. But have you also seen the change of perspective now in, in, in kids? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's really encouraging, uh, particularly actually post or maybe I can't say post COVID. <laughs> you know, I think it's debatable as to whether we're oh, past. <laughs> <iffy. Yeah. laughs> Oh, I would say knows. the tail end of the the biggest consequences of COVID, perhaps. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I would say that um, I think many people have described uh, this time of post post COVID era um, that uh, you know people have become more collectively empathetic towards um, mm. towards distress more broadly, because, you know, even if we haven't personally experienced a mental illness or a mental health problem, everyone has to some degree during COVID experienced isolation, um, low mood, anxiety about the future. Mm. Um, and there's this understanding and empathy now that people, we mm. can all struggle. Um, there's the capacity mm. for us to struggle with that. And I think that um, the silver lining essentially without kind of undermining the the really hard times that people went through during COVID um, is that a lot of people now um, kind of will be interested in pursuing um, in socially impactful things. Um, and that's what I've really yep. seen within um, uh, within body banter and uh, outside of body banter with youth initiatives being, um, being brought up. Um, and a lot of young people now starting their own initiatives to benefit um, whether, you know, different social causes. And so, yeah, I think that, more broadly outside of, you know, have people been more accepting toward the concept of body image and discussions about that mm -hmm. is more an acceptance of talking about awkward topics and sensitive things mm -hmm. that people might previously have shied away from. So that's very encouraging to mm. me. Yeah. Good. Okay. Let's move on and talk about um, body dysphoria. Mm. Uh, we are now, I'm looking outside now is, completely blue skies where I am and when that's in Hong Kong that means it's not even nice heat it's just way too hot to go outside <laughs> yes, and yes. it's just peak summer by the time you shower you stepped out your door you're already drenched in sweat um so it's actually not my favorite time of the year um in that <laughs> sense also in the same uh on the same coin is that I think summer for me brings a lot of anxiety mm. um not so much now um I've and, and the thing is I love outdoors I love my water sports I love being doing sports and all that kind of stuff but mm. there's always a degree of anxiety because of um body image in general mm. to start with I think like you said as much as we are aware of it the work that we do the space that we do uh we understand when we see these ads or even looking at movies and dramas that we see this perfect body um from Hollywood or even you know closer to home in in, in Hong Kong but we still can't completely 
be, I guess, absent from that belief. They're still kind of at the back of our minds. We always think about, okay, it's summertime. I need to make sure I'm relatively in shape mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, something that I've, I've struggled with, um, with an extra layer, with an extra, I guess, complexity, if you like, uh, from, a, from a transgender point of view, mm-hmm. is that gender dysphoria, this gender dysphoria also plays a part into it. So mm-hmm. I'm very interested to kind of speak to you about what do you think, or what just what are your thoughts in general when it comes to summertime in Hong Kong, where <laughs> junk boat parties are a big thing, beaches, there's so many beaches in Hong Kong, and, you know, so many trails, people go for hikes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very outdoorsy time in Hong Kong. So how does your work can I come into this? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So just to speak to uh, body image during the summer, I think just like we'd kind of talked about earlier, I think the first step is to acknowledge that it's going to be a time that's filled with a lot of stressors when it comes to body image concerns, naturally because of all the media influences and um, advertisements that we'll be seeing. Um, that's it's. I think the first thing is to acknowledge that it's very normal to feel anxious <laughs> about our bodies during mm. the summer, regardless of what gender you identify with. So I think that's something that's quite, you know, there will always be these ideal images um, with very binary <laughs> representations of gender. Um, and that's going to, that makes anyone feel anxious because, you know, everyone's trying to live up to mm. these ideals that are photoshopped. <laughs> Um, so Instagram, (laughs) right. (laughs) Or always just shows the best side of the person. Um, so I think acknowledging anxiety and then the next thing is to, um, what I would say is, uh, is kind of just to confront that anxiety in, um, with a community. So the, uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, an example would be, um, going to the beach or going to um, going on a hike with friends that you feel safe with and really enjoy the company of. And perhaps if you're open to it, um, wearing something that you might. And that was the end of part one. Thank you so much for listening, humans. Um, you can now definitely see the reason why I had to split this episode into two parts. Thank you, Steph, again for being on the podcast. Uh, if you guys want to hear the rest of the episode, you will unfortunately have to wait for two weeks see you then bye all right episode is over thank you so so much again for being part of this conversation no matter how awkward the topic can be sometimes now if you enjoyed the episode i would like you just to help me with three tiny things one is to just share this episode to who you might think would be useful too two is to go to wherever you listen to the podcast and give me a rating or a review this will just help me to reach other people and spread the goodness of dei now, finally, the third and final thing I need you to help me with is to use what we discussed today in this episode and think of ways how you can also adopt the values of DNI in your workplace, in your business, or in your everyday life. Now, if you'd like to share that with me and the audience, feel free to drop me a message. You can go to the show notes and find out how you can do that, including where you can find this week's guest. So, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next one.